You know the difference, right, between a sermon and a homily? About 15 to 20 minutes. What I'm about to do this morning rises not even to the dignity of a talk, much less a homily or a sermon. Some of that has to do with the fact that I've been feeling terrible all week. Some of it has to do with I want to give you an early Christmas present. And as our bishop says, if you can't preach a great sermon, at least keep it short. <laughs> we'll see, right? You can start timing me right now. I want to start, though, with, a, with what Bishop Ed calls a ghost story. When I was in Bible school, my wife and I, she broke her toe this week. I'll pray for her and for all of us as we try not to break anymore. I mean, with our boys, it's a miracle that she hasn't already had other toes broken. But we, we were in Bible school together, and I was convinced at that point in my life that God had called me to be single. Now my wife, I'm sure, is convinced that I was more right then than I realized. <laughs> but I, I had this sense that I was going to be a Pentecostal monk and spend the rest of my life in study and prayer. But I absolutely adored this woman. So I, I lived in this kind of anguish that's appropriate for that stage of life. And we were, we were deep friends and had made it clear to each other that you know if I were allowed to be married, we, we would be together. But God wasn't going to allow that for me. So that was the cross I had to bear. We, we had continued, though, to stay in contact, essentially date, as, as much as you can date under the conditions of feeling that you're called to be single. And finally, I, it was, I, I realized that it was starting to hurt her and, and me, and I had made up my mind that we were going to go to dinner, and I was going to say to her, listen, we just, we just need to stop talking because this is going to keep the wound open and it's bad for you and bad for me. We should just cut our losses at this point and move on because we can't be together the way we want to be. So I'd made my mind up to do that. Now, I'm walking to the car and she's already sitting in the car waiting for me. I can see her. And as I'm walking toward her, this woman steps out to, inter to intervene, to stop me and says, Chris, can I say something to you? Now, I need to introduce you to this woman. She also went to the Pentecostal Bible School with us, and she was always prophesying. So we had chapel five days a week, whether we needed it or not. And in pretty much most of those chapel services at some point, she would share a prophetic word. And it was almost always a word of terrible warning and judgment. And... At this point, you know, I was the resident theologian on campus and she's the prophet. And so there was a lot of talk about what's going to happen when she tried to prophesy to me. Like, how am I going to respond? And I had already kind of visualized my responses for these moments. I had prepared my retorts for her word. I just was not expecting it at all in this moment for her to stop me. And she says, Chris, can I, can I say something to you? And, you know, I was raised to be nice, not necessarily kind, but nice. And so I said, eh, I'm kind of in a hurry. I'm, I'm, I'm headed to a meeting, which is true, I mean, in a sense. And she's like, it won't, it won't take long. I just need to say one thing to you. And for whatever reason, 
probably the habit of being nice. I said, sure. And then she said this, God has made you to be decisive and he loves this about you. But you've made up your mind to do something today and God wants you to know he invites you to wait three days and then do whatever is in your heart to do and he's with you. I was more stunned then than you are now. One, I did not expect it from her, but I certainly didn't expect anything like that from God at all, no matter who was speaking it. God has made you to be decisive. He loves this about you. You've made up your mind to do something. God invites you to wait three days and then do whatever is in your heart to do and he's with you. And three days later, I asked her to marry me and, and the rest is history. Not all of it can be recorded history, but the rest is, is history, right? I'm so thankful for that moment, obviously, right? I'm so thankful for that moment, not only because of what it showed me about God and what it made possible for me, but also I think it showed me something about myself that I couldn't have seen any other way. It had to, it had to be humbling in just that way. It had to come from her, like the last person that I would have been open to hearing it from. And I think it had to come in a way that left the choice to me, left the choice to me, not God says, you better marry this woman. I'm sure if I hadn't listened, that eventually would have happened, right? Because no one, no one of us wants to think what would have happened if I hadn't married Julie. So I think God probably would have later intervened with a much more direct, no, you're going to do this kind of word. But at the time it was, do what is in your heart to do. Wait three days. And at the end of those three days, do what is in your heart to do. I share that story because I think it is very similar, actually, to the story in the gospel this week, the, the ghost story of Jesus' birth, right? We, we, when we think of the Christmas story, most of us, I think, assume the narrative that Luke tells, and the emphasis in Luke is on Mary and her openness to God, her willingness to say yes to God. But in Matthew's telling, the emphasis is on Joseph, and it's a very strange story. Now you can think about this in various ways. You might just say Matthew's not very good at telling stories because he leaves almost everything we care about in the dark. Listen to the story again and think about this without filtering it through our belief in Jesus as God. Like if you had no sentimentality and you're just hearing this story, listen to how poorly it's told seemingly. The birth of Jesus took place this way, in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now listen, first of all, we all know how children get here, and we know it's not from before they lived together. So there's that detail, and people in the ancient world were just as aware of that as we are. But that's not even the strangest part of this. It's not even that, oh, you're pregnant and, oh, really? That's not even the strangest part. Listen to it again. Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, first of all, found to be with child. Now, how do you think that happened? How do you find that someone is with child? Notice Matthew doesn't tell us who knew, how they knew, what they thought about it, what she said about it. 
And he, he has the audacity to say, not only was she found to be with child, whatever that means, however they found out, whoever found out, but also that they, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, how do you find that out? And notice, Mary does not say a word. Not a single description is given of who found out, how they found out, how it was discerned that this child was there at all, much less that the child that is there is there from the Holy Spirit or whatever that might mean. And then we're told this about Joseph, her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. Now, it's striking that it's because he's righteous that he does not want to shame her. Many of us will have grown up in versions of Christianity that are more what I would call Christianism than Christianity, that think that to be righteous is to be driven to expose everyone possible to as much shame as possible so that everyone will live the right way, right? To use the threat of shame to keep everyone in line. But Joseph, like his own people, the people that have shaped him, has learned that righteousness means covering sin. Righteousness means not exposing sinners to shame. And so Joseph is not quite convinced about what's happened. Somehow he's come to know, apparently, that Mary is with child and that somehow this child is miraculous, but he is afraid to live with her still or to go through with the, with the marriage because he knows it's not his child, right? And he doesn't want to expose her to public shame, so he's gonna put her away quietly. Now, of course, in a very small town, which is the town they live in, there's nothing that's quiet, right? In fact, I think there's, there's probably a mathematical formula that tells you the smaller the town, the fewer secrets there are. So this is going to almost certainly go badly no matter what happens, but it's his heart to do this in a way that doesn't shame her even though he doesn't know what's happening. And this is, I think, one of the things we're supposed to take from the story of Joseph. One of the ways in which we're supposed to learn from this saint is that you're never gonna know really what's happening, so err on the side of not shaming other people. It's a good way to live, right? So he, his intention is to dismiss her quietly. He doesn't know what's happening, but he's righteous, and he wants to keep the, her shame minimal. Then the text says, but just when he had resolved to do this, uh, this is more than you're asking for, but in Greek, it can actually be translated either way. It can be, and if you have different English versions, you'll, you'll see that some of them translate this, this phrase, while he was deliberating, and others say, after he had decided. And that's the way the, the reading today gives it to us. Just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, sometime over the next few days, you should go and read the Gospel of Matthew, the opening chapters. Everything that really matters in Matthew, the opening chapters, happens in a dream. And th this is how the wise men avoid Herod. This is how Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt, how they return home from Egypt. Like God is speaking in dreams. And in this particular case, Joseph receives this dream. An angel appears to him and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Again, this is an odd thing, 
an odd telling of the story. Notice, we still have no idea what's happening with Mary. Did she tell Joseph what had happened? Matthew's gospel doesn't tell us. We fill in the details because we know Luke's gospel and because we've been raised in and around churches and we, we fill in gaps that are there in the text. But in Matthew's telling, we don't know. When does Mary tell Joseph that she's pregnant? What does she tell Joseph, if anything, about the fact that she is pregnant? Does she even understand what to say? Is she allowed to speak about what has happened to her? If you look at early church fathers and mothers talking about this text, they almost all assume that Mary doesn't say anything to Joseph, that she is not allowed to explain to him what has been told to her, that she has to wait for him to see it for himself. And notice what happens here. So Joseph somehow notices, he takes notice that she is pregnant, and he somehow discerns that God is involved in this, but he's not sure that he should stay involved because it's not his child. Here's this woman he's betrothed to who's now pregnant, and he's not sure what to do. How, I, don't, I can't marry her, this is not my child, and yet I can't divorce her publicly because that's going to shame her and then shame the child that's going to be born. The best I can do is put her away quietly, but I know my neighbors, at least some of them, aren't gonna accept even that. And he's wrestling through what to do. How do I handle this situation rightly? And there's no intervention in all of that. If you don't know this about God, he is annoyingly late, almost always. Right? If he does show up early, it's probably because there's bad news or news that you need to get ready to try to digest because it's going to be hard to take. But if, if it's good news, if it's news that would bring relief, it's never coming on time. Like It's never coming on time. So here's Joseph, right? He is, think about this. He's married to this, engaged to this young woman. He's about to be married to her. She turns up pregnant. And then some point he realizes without her explaining to him, that God is involved in this, I think. But I don't know what to do with any of that. And it's only after he resolves and falls asleep that God says anything to him. Now think about the story I told you about our, our lives. You have resolved to do something today. And God invites you to wait three days and then do what is in your heart to do. I, almost every time I talk here at Sanctuary, almost any time I talk anywhere, I, I, I push back against magical thinking. I think a lot of us, for reasons that are perfectly understandable, we think magically about God's work in the world. And we think, or at least at some level, we want to believe that God is gonna magically intervene every time we need it to save us from every bad situation. That God is gonna show up in some dramatic, magical way, dream, vision, for first lady, always an angel, an angelic appearance since she loves angels. We're all wishing that for her this year at Christmas. Y'all should be laughing at that. I'm not being serious about it. Ask her about angels after church. <laughs> I need to, sorry, I'm in trouble now. But we, we, I think there's at some level at least which we want. I was just talking with Zoe about this the other day and she was talking with a friend and her friend had said to her, maybe this is happening to you because you're being protected. 
And so he says, I want so badly to believe that, but I know that's not how life works. Right? But there's this temptation to magical thinking that because God is there, nothing bad is gonna happen. Or if something bad is gonna happen, God's gonna swoop in and keep it from being as bad as it could have been. But our God doesn't work magically. Our God is a living God who cares for us, but he cares for us the way he cares for us, not the way we would want him to care for us. And what Joseph's story tells us, this Christmas story tells us, is that it's only when Joseph is resolved that God can actually speak to him. If God had intervened earlier, if God had appeared first to Joseph and said, hey, don't sweat it, you're about to find out that your wife is pregnant, it's a mystery, trust me, it'll all work out in the end, go ahead and marry her. Then Joseph isn't formed. He's informed, but he, the person, the man, is not formed into the saint that he is. Magic will keep you from developing your own humanity, your own identity, your own personhood. And God is interested in you not in you doing the right thing or having the right answers or getting the right outcome. God is interested in you becoming yourself in fullness. And that's why he's never gonna intervene. He's never gonna crack the egg before you're ready to break the shell. He's never gonna swoop in and break the chrysalis so you can fly. Because if he does that, you will never form. So God's not intervening. There's no magic going to happen. But when you are resolved, when you come to yourself, you come in touch with the God who's already there and is already speaking this word, don't be afraid to do what is in your heart to do. So I'm gonna leave you with this. I think what Joseph, the word Joseph has for us at Christmas is a simple one, which is the most important things that are gonna happen around you are gonna happen when you are not doing anything. Think about what is it that Joseph contributes here? It's not his baby. It's not his plan. It doesn't happen on his timing. What Joseph contributes is that he doesn't do anything that would disrupt. He's got enough sense to keep his mouth shut and to go to sleep. Now think about the beginning of our scriptures. Adam is put into a deep sleep and out of Adam comes Eve. Adam's most important contribution as a father is what happens when he's asleep and out comes his partner, right? Or think about the story of Abraham, the covenant that he makes with God. God puts him to sleep and when Abraham wakes up, God has made the covenant. God makes the covenant with God on Abraham's behalf and Abraham just sleeps through it. Or the story of Jacob. He wakes up and what does he say? Behold, the Lord is in this place and I had no idea. That's what happens with this Joseph. Right? One day he's there, he sees his betrothed and he recognizes God is in that place and I had no idea. And it had nothing to do with me directly. And what I want to share, and this is not a word that works for everyone in every circumstance, but some of us I think need to hear it. What Joseph does is he's faced with some inexplicable act. Here is this woman, she's pregnant. It's not mine, what do I do? He thinks through it the best that he can, keeps his mouth shut, and goes to sleep. 
And when he goes to sleep, his heart opens. And like the first Joseph, the one for whom he's named, like Jacob, like Abraham, like Adam, the God who does what we cannot do is able to commune with him when he's not doing anything at all. Now this has been not only a difficult week for me, this has been a difficult year for me, it's been a difficult decade for me. I have a, a good friend who was talking about his three and a half years of tribulation, and I was like, well, apparently I got the seven-year version. Those of you who grew up in churches that fought about three and a half years and seven years of tribulation, I'm, I'm apparently the, a full-trib, not a mid-trib person. I mean, it's been seven years of one catastrophe after another for us. And there's so much, and you can ask the people that know me well, I'm, there's so much I want to do. God made me to be decisive. He loves that about me. But I don't know that it always, he loves every decision I make out of that decisiveness. But what I hear in this story, and I think what some of you need to hear, is sometimes all you can do is resolve the best you can and go to sleep. And the God who brought Eve out of Adam the God who made his house in the place where Jacob is sleeping, the God who cuts the covenant while Abraham is completely out of it. He does what you cannot do when you trust yourself to not do anything at all. And maybe the message for you for this Christmas, the message for me is you don't have to do anything. Do the best you can do, and when you're done doing what you can do, Sleep on it. And trust that the God who never sleeps is doing what you cannot. Amen?